Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's reading comes from Jonah 1, 11 to 17. They said, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray together. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Jesus, we come this morning, and whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge you or not, we desperately need you, and we want more of you in our lives. So we ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us in a meaningful way, both exposing the sin and the failings of our heart and of our lives, and at the same time reminding us of the good news of your life, death, and resurrection for us so that we would belong to you. We love you, Jesus. We come to you humbly now, asking that you would speak, that we'd have eyes, hands, ears to receive. Amen. Well, my name is Jake. I'm part of the team here. It's good to be with you on this Thanksgiving weekend. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Some of you rolled in this morning uh, from the meals that you had last night, uh, but nonetheless, it's good to be with you. In Jesus' most famous sermon, this is his most famous one, it's his greatest hit, the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's this point where Jesus is looking out over his disciples and over the crowd who has gathered, and after setting like this impossibly high ethical bar, he then says to them these words. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's one of those like seemingly crushing verses, right? The kind of verses that makes people think Christianity is either uh, irrelevant or idealistic. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But it's perhaps better translated, not as Jesus saying, you disciples must achieve perfection, but that you ought to be whole, whole. 
You, therefore, Jesus says, must be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. Wholeness for Jesus is established in contrast to duplicity. It's established in contrast to hypocrisy. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, it means things like love without prejudice. Love your enemies. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, it means forgive without reservation, without expecting repayment. It means speak without a hint of deceit. Say yes and mean it. Say no and mean it. It means marry without thought of an exit plan. All this and more is what it means to be whole. And Jesus, the Son of God, has said, this is the aim of your life. Wholeness that reflects the very character of our Heavenly Father. Wholeness. That's the purpose, that's the point of all of this this morning. And like I said, the bar is incredibly high. And as we continue in our series in Jonah this morning, this book of Jonah, we find that this wholeness is extremely elusive, that it's hard to attain. For what we have this morning in the text that Mariko read for us are examples of two fractured groups of people, two groups of people who are partially right, but also deeply mistaken, deeply duplicitous in other ways. The two groups that are alive and well today, both groups represented here in this room this morning. This morning I want us to see in our text the righteous pagans, number one, and second, the religious phony. The righteous pagans, the religious phony, and then we're going to ask, how then can both of these groups, both of these peoples, be made whole. So if you have your Bible, open to Jonah 1, 11 to 17. If you don't have a Bible at all, again, a reminder, take one from the back, keep it, it's our gift to you, okay? Bible open, Jonah 1, 11 to 17. First, the righteous pagans. We enter our text this morning mid-story, like in the middle of, of, of sort of the, the narrative text here. And so to recap, what's happened so far is God has said to Jonah, go, and Jonah has said, no. He said, nope, not today. And he doesn't say no with his words. In fact, he doesn't speak to God. He just says no with his actions. So it says he goes down to Joppa, not to Nineveh where he should go. He goes down to the hull of a ship bound for Tarshish, which is like not Nineveh, essentially. He goes down into this hole and down to sleep. All this downward movement done with the express purpose of getting away from the presence of the Lord. Well, it doesn't work. It doesn't work then and it doesn't work now. The Lord hurls a great storm. So the men hurl some cargo overboard, hoping it will help. But nothing is working. And eventually it's discovered that Jonah and Jonah's God is behind this terrible storm. And so we pick it up in verse 11. Then they said to him, this is the sailor speaking to Jonah. What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. 
Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the, sea, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So just step back for a moment and consider with me the actions of these, these pagan sailors. First, their aims are noble and good and praiseworthy. It's clear from their stated purpose, and Jonah's saying it back to them, that all they want is for the sea to quiet down for us. They just want calm in chaos. Who wants calm in the midst of chaos? We, we all should have our hands up. They want calm in chaos. They rightly observe that something is deeply wrong. And they, with the limited and finite understanding that they have, are seeking to, as best they can, chart a path of healing forward. Now, one commentator said this. Phyllis Tribble, she writes, Though blameless victims, the sailors never cry injustice. Finding themselves in a dangerous situation not of their making, they seek to solve it for the good of all. Never do they wallow in self-pity, berate an angry God, condemn an arbitrary world, target the culprit Jonah for vengeance, or promote violence as an answer. These are upstanding citizens. These are people you want to be in the boat with when the poop hits the fan. They don't point fingers. They're not backstabbing each other. They're trying to find a way forward. They want calm and chaos. Again, who doesn't want calm and chaos? Second, see this also, the sailors are full of compassion. Full of compassion. It's worth noting that before, before they begin casting lots to see on whose account this evil has come upon them, they're already throwing precious cargo overboard. These sailors rightly and instinctively prioritize compassion towards people over love of things, even love of their own job. They're throwing stuff overboard as a first measure, before we start killing people, obviously. And even when it's discovered that Jonah is the source of the problem, even after Jonah offers up himself to be hurled into the sea, what did the sailors do? Do they immediately take Jonah up on his offer? Are the words like still coming out of his mouth and they're already throwing him overboard? No, it says in verse 13, Nevertheless, despite being given a willing scapegoat, nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. The picture of these pagan sailors acting righteously and nobly would have caused the first readers, these first Hebrew readers, to stop and pause. It would have surprised them. These are characters who are not playing to type. And it should cause us to stop as well. Here before us in Jonah 1, where we expect to find a righteous prophet, instead we find righteous pagans. And the same thing happens today, doesn't it? What do you mean? We all know of examples where the righteousness of the city 
exceeds the righteousness of the church. In recent years, the church has been rocked by scandals that we would never be permitted, that would never be permitted under the HR policies of most major corporations. Where pastors and other church leaders behave in a way that would make CEOs and executives blush. This is to say nothing of the historic failures and atrocities committed in the name of Christ by the church. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know we're not eager to gloss over the failures or minimize them. Christians have never laid claim to all the goodness in the world. We only profess to worship a Lord from whom all goodness comes. In fact, I hope you see that both the Bible and history attest to what theologians call common grace. So listen to what Tim Keller says. He he explains common grace like this. He says, the doctrine of common grace is the teaching that God bestows gifts of wisdom and moral insight and goodness and beauty across humanity, regardless of race or religious belief. In the Bible, we find this happening over and over and over and over again. Implicitly, it happens all the time. Explicitly, we find in James 1.17, where James says this, Every good thing given and every perfect gift, wherever it is found, whoever it is found amongst, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow, from our whole or perfect Father. Christians believe That in an effort to sustain the world and to preserve the world, God spreads gifts, not salvation, but gifts of wisdom, moral insight, and goodness widely and without discrimination. So again, Tim Keller continues to say that while common grace does not regenerate the heart, save the soul, or create a personal covenant relationship with God, nevertheless, without it, the world would be an intolerable place to live. The Christian then, and if you're a Christian, listen, the Christian then is not constrained to the ghetto of Christian music or Christian art or Christian books, whatever those may mean, but is free to thank the Lord for beauty and truth and insight and goodness wherever it is found, on whoever's lips have spoken it. But perhaps, maybe more importantly, The righteous pagans of Jonah 1 are intended to make you, Christian, us, Christians, profoundly humble. Profoundly humble. Why did God save you? Why why did God save you? It is not because you are more moral than other people. It is not because you are wiser than other people. It was not because you were more loving or more kind or more generous than other people. A Christian is a Christian, as we just heard, for one reason alone, God's grace. God's insurmountable, can't run away from it, chasing after us, overwhelming us, too good to be true, grace. What's more... 
A Christian remains a Christian by God's grace, not by some newfound supposed spiritual superiority. A Christian is a Christian, not by any merit of their own, but by God's sovereign and gracious and loving and incomprehensible decision for us, that he would call us his. So what do you have to boast in? What do you have to brag about today? See, while the righteous pagans are indeed acting righteously, paganism, both then and in its modern manifestations today, has one fatal flaw, one fatal chink in the armor. It's self-sufficiency. Thinking we can do it ourselves, thinking salvation is found with an inward look, an internal voyage. Notice the sailors' nobility and compassion compel them, even after being given a solution, it compels them to find their own way out of this predicament. Look at verse 13 again. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. The sea got worse. The men literally dug deep, it says in the text. They dug deep, right? They, they, they stuck in. It sounds like a Jordan Peterson podcast, doesn't it? Now, don't mishear me. I love me some personal discipline, and Lord knows our age needs it. So don't mishear me. But you can just imagine the podcast that these guys were listening to, right? Things like cold showers and 4.30 a.m. wake up. That's success. Here we go, right? Dig in. Dig deep. Find it. Or... This one daily practice, gratitude journaling, right? 20 minutes of meditation, right? This is a game changer. For all their effort and all their nobility and all their compassion, all that they do, the sailors cannot make it to dry land. They are still, still in the storm still in that boat, and the chaos still rages around them. And so hear this this morning if you're not a follower of Jesus. And if you are, you'll probably relate to this too. Righteousness, on its own, sourced from ourselves, has limits. And some of us are brushing up against those limits this week with that difficult coworker or that difficult neighbor, or that difficult spouse. I'm the difficult spouse, by the way. Or that you, you fill in the blank. Righteousness sourced in ourselves has its limits. And maybe you feel this morning exhausted and empty. As our culture continually raises the bar of virtue... We see this in the epidemic of compassion fatigue and the corresponding growing cynicism in our day. It can't be done. It's their fault. It's their fault. It can't be done. It's their fault. For all their efforts, all their digging deep, the righteous pagan remains fractured, not whole. Yet the harder they work, the more introspective and educated they get, 
The sea grows more and more tempestuous, and the calm they seek eludes them. They are, of course, to be clear and to be sure, no better off and in the same boat as the religious phony. This is point number two, the religious phony. Look back at your Bibles with me. I I hope by now, if you've been tracking with us in the series, Jonah's hypocrisy is evident to all. Like it's super clear. And it's made even more clear when contrasted with the righteous behavior of the sailors. Here's a man who says, I fear the Lord and yet runs from the Lord. And so what can we learn from this religious phony? I want to suggest three things for us. The first is this. We need to see that we are Jonah. In Jonah's phoniness, we see our own phoniness. In Jonah's hypocrisy, we see our hypocrisy. In Jonah's inconsistencies, we see our own inconsistencies. Jonah's mouth says one thing, but his life says something different. And isn't that my story and your story as well? In case you're hard-pressed to see yourself as a hypocrite, I know it's a harsh word, maybe the language of divided allegiance or divided loyalty or divided love is more helpful. I doubt Jonah would have identified himself as a hypocrite. I don't think he would have seen himself that way. But he is one. And he's a hypocrite because he is loyal to nation and to ethnic identity, to his own interests over the Lord. His own interests had quietly and unnoticeably and subtly taken priority in his heart over the Lord. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, it's always a good idea to ask the question, where does our loyalty lie? Where does your loyalty lie? Are are you half-hearted in your allegiance? Or are you wholehearted in your pursuit of Jesus and his kingship? In that same Sermon on the Mount, that same sermon I referenced earlier, Jesus looks over the crowd and he sees in the crowd anxiety. Nothing's changed. He sees an anxious crowd. And he gives a remedy. He says this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things you're worrying about, clothes, food, right, shelter, right, how are you going to pay for university for your kids? How are you going to live in this city that's so expensive? How are you going to buy groceries next week with inflation? All these things will be added to you, Jesus says. But seek first, make first in your heart, my kingdom, my lordship, my reign. In Jonah, we see ourselves. In his phoniness, our phoniness. Second thing, religious hypocrisy is not only dangerous to to me and to you, it's dangerous to other people as well. And again, look at your Bibles here. The result of Jonah's phoniness is that the sailors are left with the wrong impression of who God is. Jonah says, look here, throw me over, but the sailors row harder. And eventually, recognizing the futility of their efforts, they give in. But listen to what they say in verse 14. It says, Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. 
See, the sailors don't want to survive the storm only to be guilty of murder before a clearly powerful deity, right? We made it through the storm, but we killed this prophet, and so now we're screwed. It's essentially the, the sentiment there. So what do they do? They, they, they throw Jonah overboard. And why do they do that? They say, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. In other words, they think Jonah's death would please the Lord. Would at least appease the Lord. They think mistakenly, not aware of the large fish lurking under the surface, that Yahweh's endgame is Jonah's demise, his destruction. And we can't blame them. The gods of the sailors were a bloodthirsty and vindictive bunch. And so I'm sure it came naturally to think of Yahweh in the same vein. Jonah even seems to be encouraging this thinking. We have to believe that at any point Jonah could have repented could have told his ship that he bought out to turn around and go back to Joppa and the storm would have stopped. But he perpetuates the pagan sailor's misconception of God by saying, here's how you fix it, not by my repentance. No, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. See, based on what Jonah said and showed to the sailors, here's who they know God to be. Ready? Ready? Here's who God is to them. Yahweh, to these sailors, is being portrayed as a nationalistic, um, sort of pithy God that really wasn't all that different from the, the pagan gods and the regional deities on offer. He's just the same. He's just like them. Here's the question. What untruth about God does our life communicate? What lie about God do your actions perpetuate and my actions perpetuate? Does our lack of faithfulness and commitment to one another communicate to our neighbors in a watching world that our God isn't faithful, but in fact our God is as fickle as we are? Does our love for wider approval and acceptance communicate to our neighbors that God is either not able or not willing to, keep us, to give us the deep acceptance in Christ that we long for? Do our partnerships with injustice and evil, no matter how small, undermine the truth in our workplace or home that we follow a just God who will judge the living and the dead? Or, or do they communicate that God doesn't care? that he doesn't see, and he won't judge. Religious phonies like you and like me are a danger, not just to ourselves, but to other people as well. It turns out that it's not just the pagans who are fractured, incomplete, not whole people, but us religious types as well. So where do we go from here? If our good deeds cannot save us from the storm, what can? If our ethnicity, the family we were born into, our religious posturing can't save us from the storm, what can? The answer is, in fact, not found in the book of Jonah, but it's in what the book of Jonah points to. 
See, when Jonah tells the men to hurl him into the sea, I don't believe it comes from a self-sacrificial place, a noble place. Jonah's request to be hurled into the sea is an ultimate manifestation of his flight from God. Surely in my watery grave, God will leave me alone. To Jonah's horror, however, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This reference to three days and three nights points us to an episode in Jesus' life many, many years after Jonah. Jesus is, in fact, being pestered by some religious phonies, people who profess to love God but, in fact, hate his son. Look at Matthew 12, verse 38 to 40 with me. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, Jesus, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus tells us that he and Jonah share one very important commonality. Ready? Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They share one important commonality, and it's geographical. That's it. And as Jonah was vomited up alive, so Jesus is saying that he will be buried and will rise again on the third day. That's core to what we believe as a church. But, but, but that's where the similarities end. From here on out, it's all divergence. It's all difference. Listen, Jonah goes to the grave in his flight of disobedience from God. Jesus, however, goes to the cross in perfect obedience to his heavenly father. Jonah would rather die than see his enemies saved. Jesus died so that his enemies could be saved. Do you see the difference? Jonah is the guilty one who is sacrificed in the place of innocent sailors. Jesus is the innocent one who is sacrificed in the place of guilty humanity. Guilty people, both pagan sailors and religious phonies alike. And while Jonah's watery descent threatens to obscure and distort the sailors' picture of God, in, in the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, we see most clearly and beautifully the character of God. A God who would move heaven and earth to save righteous pagans and religious phonies alike. So how are we made whole? How are we made whole? How do we obey Jesus' command to be perfect as his heavenly Father is perfect? It begins by trusting in Jesus. By throwing yourself upon Jesus. By saying to Jesus, you, Jesus, are more valuable to me than anything in this world. And I want to be with you and under your kingship more than anything else in this whole world. That's what a Christian says. That's what a Christian is. By trusting in the greater sign that Jonah and this fish point to. When we do that, 
once and day by day, who knows what God will do with our lives. See, as discouraging as the first two lessons from the religious phony are, here's the third lesson from Jonah, the religious phony. God used Jonah in spite of his disobedience. Despite Jonah's misrepresentation of God, God's sovereign will that these sailors be saved, it won the day. It won the day. Eventually, our reading ends today with sailors making a profession of faith. More than that, actually, verse 16 reads, look at verse 16 in your Bible. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These men are the anti-Jonah. Having encountered God, their lives are changed. And in fact, in the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's even more emphatic. It's something like, once the sailors got home, they sacrificed sacrifices and they vowed vows. Like they wholeheartedly ran after Yahweh and pursued him. They sacrificed sacrifices and vowed vows. Though they, through the severe mercy of God's storm, became wholehearted worshipers of the Lord. And it's a miracle. And while Jonah had no interest in the sailor's salvation, God used Jonah. In spite of Jonah's disobedience, God saved. Here's the question. How much more might he do with our spirit-empowered obedience? With our spirit-empowered yes. For many of us, we are acutely aware of our hypocrisy. I didn't have to talk about it this morning for you to be aware of it. You, you knew about it. You know about it. This gap between who we are and who, who, sorry, where we are and who God has called us to be and the awareness of this gap has paralyzed us. And in this paralyzing middle ground, we discover one of the greatest lies of the enemy, right? That in our shortcomings, in our phoniness, we are discredited from doing anything worthwhile for the kingdom at all. And it's a lie. It's a lie. Here's what we miss when we believe this lie. On this side of eternity, God only uses people like Jonah and people like you and me. God only uses religious phonies. God only uses righteous pagans. Until Jesus comes back and makes us new, God's gentle spirit will always be exposing the fracturedness in us our imperfect and even malicious desires. Until Jesus comes back and makes us new, we will always feel this gap between who Christ says we actually are right now and the sin which clings so closely. But in that moment, when that gap seems so insurmountable, how will you respond? Will you act like the righteous pagan? Will you dig deeper? Desperately running from technique to technique, needing to top off our depleted resources of kindness. Against the storm of life, you and I are powerless. Or will we be a bunch of religious phonies, half-hearted in our devotion, lukewarm in our living, here but not really here, about this but not really about this, content to deceive ourselves, that faith without works is still some kind of faith, maybe. 
No, in those moments when we feel most needy, most weak, we turn to Jesus. And Jesus promises to give us everything we need. And then we share Jesus. We turn to Jesus and we share Jesus. Jesus calls righteous pagans to rest and religious phonies to task. He wants all of us because he wants us to be whole. His death and his resurrection, it comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Which one are you? What is he saying to you today? Let's pray. Father, the truth of your word lays us bare before you. And if there are any remaining roadblocks in our hearts, nose in our heart to your lordship, I ask that now by your spirit you would tear those down. That we'd see ourselves as bare before you. Needy before you. We thank you, Jesus, that you clothe us. That when we trust in you, you clothe us. You make us righteous. You give us what is not naturally ours. You do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So who else can we worship this morning? Who else is worthy of our praise? Align our hearts to love you, Jesus, wholly and completely, without reservation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.